Thank Jared for that wonderful reading. A lot of uh, interesting names in there and he managed to navigate through the names quite well. <laughs> Let us pray. Lord, in your mercy, will you open our eyes to understand that which we find difficult to accept and to be able to know your wisdom and your will for us. Teach us your way and speak to us, Lord, through your servant, this lump of clay. And so may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts, O Lord, be acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Before I begin, I need to make some uh, caveats. <clears throat> I don't know how many of you would know me well enough, but uh, I struggle with this particular chapter. It is the last chapter in uh, Job 42, a chapter which talks all about suffering, but never really explains suffering. And it's a difficult chapter because it is a, it's a topic which everybody will keep asking every pastor. How do I understand pain, suffering, evil in the light of a God who is good? If God is good, why is there evil? If there are all these problems, you know, what can it tell us about God? And so I need to forewarn you that the study of Job is not intended to bring comfort to the suffering. I say this again. If you're coming here and expecting to hear comfort for uh, you know, to, 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 to hear this and, and to expect that it will bring you comfort in suffering, it doesn't. Instead, it will bring understanding that might prevent us from simply shaking our fists at God. It doesn't bring us comfort, but it helps us to understand God better so that we do not make the wrong assumptions about Him. You see, Job actually, to some extent, is shouting at God, yelling at God, calling him to court, wanting to bring charges against him, and essentially blaming God for all that is happening to him. But what is the alternative to this? The alternative is to trust God, to trust his wisdom, and to submit to God's authority. In a way, I'm giving you a gist and a summary of what we will arrive at at the end. And too often we focus our faith on believing that God will heal, that He will relieve our suffering or protect us from pain. And I need to ask you this, is this your understanding of God? That the purpose of God is that when you believe in Him, He will heal you, that He will relieve your suffering and that He will protect us from pain. Not only that, that He will come to us and give us explanations about all the things that are happening to us. Now, if that is the worldview that you have, Job totally dispels all of that. Because you see, sometimes our faith is based on the ability of ours to make sense of our experiences, particularly of pain and suffering. We don't seem to understand it. So for us, if we can understand pain and suffering, then we say we will believe in God. But again, the book of Job doesn't deal with that. So be forewarned. 
Job is not about comfort in your suffering. It's about understanding God's policy towards people and his, uh, and his response to them. So the title for today's sharing is taken from the second part of this particular verse, uh, Things Too Wonderful for Me to Know. Things Too Wonderful for Me to Know. It begins, in a way, uh, with a response in Job 42, uh, verse 2. At the end of verse 42, verse 2, he says, I know that you can do all things, and no purpose of yours can be thwarted. I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Just now, when Jared was reading the older version of the NIV, it says, no plan of yours. Okay, And so you might be asking, does God have a, a reason for everything that He does? Uh, no, but He does have a purpose for everything that He's doing. And if you have your Bibles with you, it'd be good to keep it open because I'll be going uh, to and fro. So keep it open to Job uh, 42. Also, uh, there's the outline with the fill in the blanks. So you might want to fill that in as well. So one of the answers that you should be getting for this particular sentence is Job's confession of God's power and purpose. You see, in all of this disaster that, that Job has encountered, in chapter 38, Job finally gets an answer from God, or rather, uh, God suddenly enters into the scene and speaks to Job. He doesn't answer the question, but he speaks to Job. He speaks to Job and he gives uh, pretty much a, a, a documentary, uh, you know, National Geographic or a planet Earth or planet or entire universe type uh, summary. But one of the things that Job responses, uh, responds to this after seeing this summary is his statement, I know that you can do all things. He's omnipotent, all-powerful, that he can do all things. And that he has an inescapable purpose. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. I love that word, you know, it's not a very common word that you come. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. Now, I'm going to ask my friends to play this, uh, this video clip. And in a way, when this clip is playing, you imagine the situation. Job has encountered all this suffering. He's shaking his fist at God. He says, explain to me what has happened? Because as far as I understand, I've not done anything wrong. Why have you done this to me? Kind of like a retribution policy. You remember I mentioned that when I first preached a couple of weeks back. If I have done good, why do you, why do you uh, cause all this pain and suffering to me? And, you know, in other parts of Scripture, why do the wicked prosper? Other parts of the psalm. So he's shaking his fist and he says, there has to be this kind of retribution principle. This world has to be run on some form of justice, right? You are a just God. So is this just that the righteous suffer? And this is the, 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 the issue at hand. And in answer to all of this, finally, God appears on the scene and he does his National Geographic commentary. So I would like you to think about this, right? And then we play this clip to see what is the response that you get.
So what do you feel when you watch something like that? Does it answer the question of suffering? You kind of get a glimpse of, of what I struggle with when trying to bring this message. Job has just lost everything, pretty much everything, and he's suffering and he's in pain and he's been, he's been shouting into the darkness and he's asking God to respond. And finally, God responds. And his first response in verse 30, uh, chapter 38, verse 1, the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. He said, Who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. Now, the text that is being shown here is not from uh, Job 38. This is from Job 42. But in Job 38 and Job 40, this question is asked twice. Who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. Verse 4 of chapter 38. So if you have your text, you want to follow me there. Verse 4 of uh, chapter 38. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off these dimensions? Surely you know who stretched the measuring line across it. On what were its footings set, or who laid its cornerstone? While the morning stars sang together, and all the angels shouted for joy. Who shut up the sea behind doors when it burst forth from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness. When I fixed limits for it and set its doors and bars in place. When I said, this far you may come and no farther. Here is where your proud waves halt. Have you ever given orders to the morning or shown the dawn its place that it might take the earth by the edges and shake the wicked out of it? The earth takes shape like clay under a seal. Its features stand out like those of a garment. The wicked are denied their light and their upraised arm is broken. No, it's very majestic in its, uh, in its documentary evidence of God at work. And so God's response to Job out of his suffering is, do you understand all these things? You speak about things that you do not understand. And so when I remind you about what this world is all about, are you going to say to me that you know better and you want to call me into account? Recently, a friend of mine was uh, sharing this uh, rather funny joke. He had a friend who was an astrophysicist and he said, in terms of scale, right, in terms of scale, what is it like if you had a, a person who, with his hand like this, up, right, and you start going back into the universe and you see how big this universe is and that God inhabits this entire universe, do you think God would be able to see that, sh that fish shaking at him? It gives you a sense of the scale of God. That if it is so huge, that this universe is so, and you are just a tiny, 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 really tiny speck. And yet, in Scripture, he reminds us, he knows your every hair. 
He knows every trouble that you go to. I mean, I, I looked at one of the verses there and it just blew me away. It says, do you know when the goat gives birth? And I reflect upon this and I realize that in spite of the fact that man is not looking, God is still doing his marvelous creation around us. That in spite of all of this, when we seem to be so preoccupied with our own pain, God is doing all these marvelous things. And the responses that God gives to, to Job are essentially one of two things. Were you there at the creation? And do you sustain this world? And if you don't, who does? Only God. And so in response to this, Job answers in 42 verse 3. Job is saying, you asked... In, in chapter 38, verse uh, 2 and 3, who is this that obscures my plan without knowledge? And his reply, surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, again, Job saying, God, you said, listen now and I will speak, I will question you and you shall answer me. And his response His response is, is in answer to, Job, uh, to God's questioning of him in chapter 38 and chapter 40, and finally at now chapter 42, a confession of his lack of understanding and his unworthiness of things too wonderful for me. So here's the big challenge for us. In our suffering, we are trying to understand and God says, you will not understand. Have you ever had children who do this to you? You know, you do something to the children for their good, but they're too young to understand this. And as a parent, as a father, some parents know, you, won't under, you don't understand this now, but when you come to my age, you will understand. There's an element of that going on. And the child will cry and rail and say, you don't love me. You are just a big, big bully. Have you ever seen that? Sometimes there are these things too wonderful for us to understand. How then do we deal with these situations? Job says in verses 5 and 6, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. This is really a very difficult verse in the, in the uh, Hebrew to actually translate. It has multiple meanings. I heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. The difficult one is, therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Now, several things I want to take out from here. Job in, in, in verse 5, right, when he says, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear. He's talking about, I heard you, I don't see you, but I hear you. Kind of like distant and you're coming 
So he knows about the theory of God. He knows about God in terms of like he's heard about this God. But then now my eye sees you. It is the experience of God, the reality of God up close that he now no longer just hears in theory, but now he encounters in truth. And so this is one of the results that he encounters through his suffering. That one of the things that he gets out of suffering is that what he encounters as theory of God, he now encounters in the reality of his pain. Suffering sometimes forces us to either run away from God very far and hate Him and shake your fist at Him, or it calls us to draw closer to Him and truly understand His heart and His purpose. What does it do to you? Do you curl up in your suffering and curl up in bitterness, or do you pull closer? Very much in the same case as parents, when your children are hurting over something that you have done when you punish them? Do they run further away from you? Or do they come to you and ask for comfort from you? So Job says, I know my status. Therefore, I despise myself. And this is where the difficult word is. That word, emas, uh, is multiply translated uh, it's translated, I despise myself or I melt or I submit myself. Okay, There are multiple meanings. In other words, uh, the, the, the translation that I tend to prefer, which is not the same one that you get in the, in the text, is that I submit, I surrender. That seems to be a more appropriate one. I withdraw the arguments that I have made against you or the charges that I have made against you that would be more likely what Job is saying. And the second word, I repent. Repent of what? What is he repenting of? We know that Job is said to be blameless and upright. So what exactly is he repenting from? Again, uh, various translations interpret that as being, I am consoled or I am content to remain in dust and ashes. Again, another difficulty. What does dust and ashes mean? Is he saying dust and ashes because he is sitting in dust and ashes? Or is he saying dust and ashes because he is in grief? I console myself or I repent in ashes, in grief. Or is he saying I repent and, 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 and this is my lot in life, that in my life I will be eventually dust and ashes, die. So there are multiple meanings that can be extracted from this. But let me take a larger view from the back, which is that when Job encounters this awesome God, he has nothing to do but to submit and surrender and recognize his human frailty and the grief that he is in. It's just an acknowledgement of the reality of where he is. I took this picture recently, or rather, I, I got this picture online. It is a picture of an ice cube that is melting in ashes. I don't know whether it helps you to imagine this, but Job is a little bit like this, you know. He's like melting away in the heat of God's focus on him. 
Then we come to this passage in 42 verse 7 to 9. It's a rebuke of uh, Job's friends. So let me just read that. 42 verse 7 to 9. After the Lord had said these things to Job, he said to Eliphaz the, ex- the, the Temanite, I'm angry with you and your two friends because you have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. I'm angry with you and your two friends because you have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. Not long ago, one of my friends, a close friend, actually quoted something that uh, uh, the Temanite had said. And he put it up on his Facebook thingy and saying, you know, this is, this is what God says. And I had to explain to him, brother, if you read all of this all the way to the end, God says that what these guys said, not true. And so if you read the arguments of Temanite, uh, uh, you know, uh, sorry, Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar, you need to know that their understanding of suffering and pain is incorrect, not accurate, not right. They are in a way uh, what we call uh, Pascal, uh, Pascalology, the theory of suffering. And what they essentially say is, you are suffering because you did something. That in itself is wrong. Because in chapter 2, earlier on, God himself tells the adversary, right, that you incited me to inflict suffering on Job for no reason. So what he tells us about suffering, therefore, is that suffering is not necessarily so simplistically always a result of divine punishment. Very simplistically, when people say, like recently in Malaysia, oh, what happened in the, in the earthquake there? Because LBGTQ. Or you can tag whatever line you want to. Lah. Maybe there are all this uh, corruption. You know, what's happening to Malaysia is because of all the corruption. That may and well be true, but it is not so simple. This is what Job is essentially teaching us. That suffering, in occasion in the Old Testament, was a result of divine punishment, but not always. And it is not always so simplistically that way. For you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job. Do you realize, right, that all the friends, when they came, they were, you know, hey, Job, you did something. It must be something you did. Maybe your children, maybe you. Another one of the arguments was, Job, your suffering, right, is temporary. If you repent and you are righteous, your suffering will be lifted up. Which is effectively what some of our local current day people say. If you repent of your sin, right, and you confess Jesus is Lord, He will heal you right here, right now, during your lifetime. But our reality tells us that is not the case. And our theology in Job reminds us that is not necessarily the case. Our suffering is not a direct result of a retribution principle based on justice. That is what the book is trying to talk about. Now we move on. We have this difficult thing that this is where we struggle with the most, right? 
uh, that in Job 42, verse 10 to 16. Let me read that. After Job had prayed for his friends, the Lord restored his fortunes and gave him twice as much as he had before. All his brothers and sisters and everyone who had known him before came and, uh, and uh, ate with him in his house. They comforted and consoled him over all the trouble the Lord had brought on him. And each one gave him a piece of silver and a gold ring. The Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life more than the former part. He had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 donkeys. And he also had seven sons and three daughters. First daughter, he named Jemima. Jemima in Hebrew means dove. The second, Kezia. Cinnamon. Cinnamon, herb. Uh, precious herb as well. And the third, Keren Hapuk. Hapuk or Hapush. Keren Hapush, meaning dark eyes. Now, why does he give these names? I don't know. It's, it's there. It's there. But it gives this idea that the girls are recognized and they are remembered and they are highlighted, elevated in position. Very unusual because what happens after this is he says, Nowhere in all the land were they found women as beautiful as Job's daughters and their father granted them an inheritance along with their brothers. It's a bit of an aside statement because nowhere in, in ancient Near East culture do you ever do this. Give an inheritance to the daughters. Now, How does Job's response to God, you know, provide us a logical response to God? How does this epilogue, the thing that happens after this, uh, provide a legitimate conclusion to the book? Responding or restoring Job's prosperity doesn't erase the suffering he experienced. Let me say this again, huh? And I think most of you will understand this. Restoring Job's prosperity does not erase the suffering that he experienced. So the solution seems very hollow. Providing Job more children does not heal his grief for those that he lost. How many of you, you lost your children, you got more children, you're like, oh, I'm so happy now, I've forgotten all my previous kids. I still have friends who mourn the loss of their children the ones that, that have gone before them, even though that they have many children after. So it would seem as if restoring Job's prosperity seems like a reinstallation of the retribution principle. Because Job has been righteous and good, therefore, <laughs> this happens, that he is multiplied double. Now, I put there times two. It specifically tells you the number and you go back to, to Job chapter 1, you will notice everything is times 2. A multiplication to just reflect to you that his life in the latter part was greater than the former. Everything repeated except children. Some of you might think, oh yeah, definitely <laughs> don't want to have double the number of children. But Warren Wiersbe in one of his commentaries basically said, we never really lose our children. You only lose your children when you do not know where they are. But in this case, although he has lost them, he knows where they are. And so Warren Wiersbe's take of this is that 
the children are there, he still has double the number of children because his children are waiting for him to come to them. But I also want to talk about the wife. He doesn't have more wives, huh? men, take note. <laughs> he still has his one wife. And this one wife is the same wife who told him earlier on, why don't you curse God and die? And yet, in spite of this, she never left him. Although she also had lost everything, she had, she had in, in essence, lost everything because the shame was with her and everything that she has encountered has been taken away from her. Nonetheless, after all of this suffering, they are still a couple. They still consummate their marriage to each other and they still bear children. And she is, in the background, still faithful to him. The central aim of this book is to understand God's policy. And what is God's policy? It was stated right at the beginning when the challenger challenged God. Does God, does Job worship you for no reason? You have placed a hedge around him. The adversary challenges God's retribution principle that righteous people should prosper. Whereas Job claims it is poor policy for righteous people to suffer. And throughout the book, Job maintains his belief that righteousness, not prosperity, is the thing that matters the most. So Job demonstrates that it is possible to be righteous for righteousness' sake. He indeed will serve God for nothing because everything has been taken for him. It also proves in this book that it is not automatically the case that it is God's policy to prosper the righteous. And while God delights in bringing good to those who are faithful, the world does not operate according to justice but according to God's wisdom and understanding. I don't know how many of you find this hard to accept. Prosperity and health is not a reward. It's not a reward he deserves or one that, is, uh, one that God is obliged to give or provide. It is rather a gift from God. You see, when Job makes the offering on behalf of his friends, he's not doing a, uh, what do you call it, an equation here. If I do this, then you will not hold up to this. His philosophy early on in Job chapter 1 and 2 was, let me offer offerings for my children in case they have done something wrong. Retribution principle. But now he is being reminded that these people are already deserving of this. But God is holding back his punishment. And so the response for the worship and the sacrifice is not one of, I do this in order that I avoid this. It is, I do this in thanksgiving because God has withheld his punishment and given me grace instead. 
Because when we really think about this, if God were to operate on this retribution and justice principle, if He were to look into my mind and your minds, it is not blessing that we deserve. It is outright condemnation and destruction. So the restoration of Job's prosperity is not intended to erase Job's pain. It's not even primarily for his benefit, but it is the pleasure of God to bless him. And I thank God that because he does that, we are not recompensed for our righteousness because we would be most deserving of punishment. The epilogue does not suggest that we suffer that when we suffer, we may console ourselves with an expectation that someday in this lifetime, we will get it all back. Let me say this again. Huh? Very clearly, this epilogue is not intended to tell you that if you do all these things, someday you get it all back. It is not. And it's very evident from some of our friends who live righteous until all the way to the end that that is not true. I, I think in mind, uh, Nabil Qureshi, Ravi Zacharias' assistant, who converted from being Muslim to being a Christian, suffered painfully, died of cancer. But before he passed away, he said, love is the utmost gain. And that as I suffer, I am surrendering myself to the will of God. Job never receives an explanation for why he's suffering. And the book, this book, will not fill that void either. So if you're looking for answers as to why we suffer, this book doesn't tell you. But it does tell you, in the face of suffering, what do you understand about God and how will you respond to God? We also need to remember and reflect about what Christ did. In James chapter 1, verse 2, it says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault and it will be given to you. Note this, the same thing that James teaches is what Job teaches. Wisdom does not ease our suffering. It doesn't. But it does help us to avoid the foolish thinking that might lead us to reject God when He need Him the most. So in our suffering, is not, it's not so much like, uh, uh, what do you call it, give us relief. It is more give us wisdom to understand what is God's purpose in all of this. So let me bring this to a close. Some thoughts about suffering and pain. Maybe I should do a seminar on this because there's a lot of material. <laughs> How many people want to go on a seminar about pain? <laughs> There are several ways in which people uh, look at, at suffering, several different principles that people like to take. 
one suffering in divine punishment. And true, yes, in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, in Revelation, as a result of sin, there is divine punishment. But to simplistically say that suffering and punishment go hand in hand, glove in hand, is not necessarily the case. Two, we say that suffering is divine test or trial of faith. Yes, in the case of Job, it is a divine test. It is a trial of faith. In the case of Jesus, it is a divine test, a trial of faith. Three, suffering is part of the gift of human freedom. Do you realize that in order for you to have a choice, that choice means you can choose good or choose evil. If I do not give you that choice, that is not love. Because once you have no choice but to choose this, then all things that make you human, the ability to choose, has been taken away from you. So in order for me to give you perfect humanity, it also requires that I give you the ability to suffer as a consequence of your choice. Four, suffering is part of nature and a function of the physical world. Many of you are doctors. And I think doctors know very well that pain is a feedback mechanism for the body to say something is wrong. Can you imagine what would happen if you have no pain at all and your hand is left on the fire? Until you smell the chasu, <laughs> you don't realize it. And some people do suffer that. Lepers have no pain receptors. When they cut themselves, they don't even realize and it goes septic. Pain is a natural feedback response. And when you really think about this, a world without pain is also a world that is very static. There is no sense of high or low. And item five, which I think most people find the most difficult, is that suffering is creation in process. We are on the way until we finally come to Christ and the second coming when all suffering is finally taken away. And so we are in the, in, in the birth pangs until the new creation is coming. So it is a part of our creation in this process. Last two slides. Suffering is one of the contingencies of creation in process. It is part of the things that we encounter. Because we have a choice, we also suffer from our choices. Suffering is not intrinsically connected to sin. Job is evidence of this. That when you suffer, it is not because you have done something wrong. Not necessarily. We all confess our sins but we are neither tied down to the guilt that our suffering is tied to some unconfessed sin. Suffering is the Lord of all humanity, and might I add, even Christ himself suffered. And so as much as friends argue with me about why is it that there is a good God who creates suffering, I have even bigger issues. Why does a good God suffer? Because if he is all-powerful, he could have avoided the suffering. And yet, he suffered as a model and example for us 
in order that we would respond like Him in the face of suffering. Suffering should be faced with trust in God's wisdom. Just like what God did to Job. Do you understand these things? If you do not understand these things, will you trust Him? Because He's the only one who knows why. And it should be viewed as an opportunity to deepen our faith through surrender and submission. Recently, a friend wrote, the one thing that suffering does is confront you with the opportunity to submit, to surrender, and to say to God, your will be done. We know this because Jesus himself said in Matthew 26, verse 39, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 5 verse 7 says, During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. Jesus learned obedience through his suffering. How much more we? So will you look at the suffering you encounter as an opportunity to deepen your faith? It doesn't comfort you, but it helps you to understand God and to know and trust him in his wisdom and his understanding. Will you reflect on this particular verse? That even as you encounter your suffering, even as you minister to others who are suffering, that Christ himself suffered, that he submitted himself to God's will. It was a forced discipline on him. That in our difficulty, we learn obedience through our suffering. Is kindness without profit an impossibility? And profit is usually a motivation for kindness, and this is often our worldview. Yet Job offers us the hope and good news that kindness, or as we call it, righteousness, can be motivated by something other than profit. Do we serve God for nothing then? Righteousness and kindness certainly please God, and pleasing God is a good motivation. The key, though, is to avoid expecting something in return. His approval should be enough. A pure motivation to kindness and righteousness should therefore become the object of our prayers. Let us pray. Lord, would you use our suffering to help us to become more trusting in you, more dependent on you, and more patient with others, more aware of our weaknesses, and more full of grace rather than bitterness. We ask this, Lord, 
for the power and the spirit of Christ Jesus to help us to be like Jesus, who although he was a son, learned obedience through what he suffered. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.